Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we are midway through the World Series. It's one and one, heading back to Philly. And by the time everyone listens to this, we will know the outcome. But Matt, tell us, how is things going in the World Series? I mean, it would be better if we were up to nothing. It'd be too easy. It can't be that easy. Let's just say, okay, knowing the Astros fan that I am, I made a commitment. I don't know if it's a commitment, but... To get a tattoo year, if they win. No. Oh, okay. But last year, I was like, it was like 600 bucks for a ticket, but I was like, I have to say I've been to a World Series game. I have to experience this, right? Yeah. So I did that. I'll get it out of my system, what have you. Like, it's only something rich people do is spend that kind of money on a, <laughs> a ticket and all that. And then this year, it's like, I want to go again. Oh, yeah. Um, so I spent even more money to watch Verlander give up a bunch of runs and implode and yeah. then a very frustrating extra innings game. So I'm wounded, mm. sort of a neurotic mess after watching that. Okay. But it was good to see the boys put it back together, Yeah, have a good outing. And then, you know, hopefully... Philly can't afford a roof, so hopefully they don't get rained out tonight and mm. uh, Lance McCullers gets up there and does what he does. Wow. Okay, so they're outside. Different element, obviously. What's the weather supposed to be like tonight? Well, there? potentially rain. That's the problem. So, and cold, too, I'm assuming, roughly, like yeah. 50s-ish. It's, yeah, I, I think so, 50 or 60. But hmm, That's crazy. You know, when we were talking earlier, you know, you get the Twitter feed, you get everyone else. And, you know, it's just there's no lack of information, you know, as the game is going on. But I've seen a lot on Verlander, including himself, saying he wasn't real pleased with his own performance. Is that like like what happened to him? Well, he shouldn't be. So Verlander has a terrible postseason record. Oh, he's never won a World Series game. Um, And he's he's (laughs) pitched in like six or seven of them. I think that was a sixth. Needs to change the underwear or something. I don't know what it is, but he needs to do something. And so it's interesting because he started out doing really well. And an ALCS, ALDS game one, remember, that was a big comeback. He was terrible. Mm. Like, Dusty Baker should have pulled him a lot earlier, blah, blah, blah. Mm. He kept giving up runs. He just couldn't get it together. ALCS game one, he starts a little sloppy. And then it's like classic Verlander, tightens up. He's awesome. So like this time he comes out, he's looking pretty good. And then he, this like comebacker, Comes straight at him. And if he would have caught it, he would have been able to throw and, and get a double play. Instead, he drops it and the base runners make it safely on base, you know. And he just wasn't the same after that. And yeah. it was just very, very frustrating to see that and then be like, okay, he gave up three runs, but we're still at 5 3. Kyle Tucker hit two home runs at this point. Wow. So you're like, just pull him, like get the bullpen going. Yeah. Five to three lead. We can keep that. And instead, it was like, no. Let's see how much worse he can do. Um, so, anyways, it was a tie game, and then it just dragged on and on. And all that being said, it messed with as this time of year always does. So, I just need the Astros to clean house, right, from um, here on in. Yeah, it would be two back there, and then one if they were to win the next. They, they win, the next to win the next three. It's done. Right, but the next three are in Philly. Right. So. Wow. Which would be my preferred outcome. You'd rather them win in Philly? I'd rather them just get it over with so I don't yeah. have to worry about it. Plus, 
I didn't really put two and two together. And so like I made some pretty substantial commitments to Friday and Saturday night <laughs> where I would just be upsetting a lot of people and my head won't totally be there if they're still playing. So apologies in advance, guy <laughs> who's getting married and other guy who asked me to chair his fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my selfish enjoyment, I hope they go to game seven, which I think would be just awesome. But for you and your friends and your social circle, it doesn't look like that would really be good on that front. But anyway, it's all fun and games. And at the end of the day, you know, when this gets released, Matt will be less stressed and hopefully you know, happy about this season. So, but moving on to Durling Food World, which is where we live in. We don't get paid to talk about baseball, but we do get paid slightly to uh, talk about drilling fluids on the flow line. Don't yes, we're on the clock. <laughs> All right. In that case, we're going to talk today something a little bit more operationally focused on the rig side of things and talking about shaker screens. And for the listeners out there, if you've been on the drilling fluids world and on a rig and you're familiar with where the shakers are and shaker screens are, that's great. But for those who aren't, that is your first line of defense for solids control. And so when the fluid and all the cuttings and all that thing comes out of the hole, it goes down the flow line, which is where we got the name from, and into the possum belly, aka shaker box, which then it proceeds to go onto the shaker screens. And that separates the solids from the fluid. And the idea there is you try and get rid of most solids, if not, I mean, because you can't get rid of all the solids because that wouldn't be good. But it gets rid of the solids that you don't want, also known as cuttings and some of the other finer solids in there as well. So we're going to talk about shaker screens today, Matt. What do you think? Is that a good idea? Yes, I think it is. Perfect. Hey, it was my idea, so I guess I should <laughs> feel pretty good about it. Yeah. You seemed very confident earlier when you're like, this is the episode we're doing and it's shaker screens. You know, and then you proceeded to send out some awesome notes here. So clearly you've been thinking about it for a while. It's something that, you know, I'm kind of joking around, but in all seriousness, this is the piece of equipment on a rig for us as mud engineers that it's what you want to kind of allude it to, but it's so important and it's something that we stand at for hours on end. We watch these cuttings and everything else coming over the shaker screens and over the shakers. In an ideal world, they would never be ripped. You know, the shakers would be operating at 100% efficiency all the times and you would never have people just turn a blind eye to them for hours on end while there's a bunch of solids going through them. But that's not really the reality, is it? No, especially not right now when you can hardly get anybody to help out. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into shaker screens themselves, Matt. The first thing I think it's important for the listeners to understand is mesh size versus API number. When I broke out in the rigs, it was all about mesh size. And then over time, we came out with API RP13C designations, I believe is what it is. And then we talked about API numbers. So I think distinguishing one from the other is important to get started. You're on. Okay, so whenever an API recommended practice is updated, normally they'll publish a paper and it'll kind of describe the process they went through, the thought process, and kind of how everything came to be. So mesh is a very traditional sizing of screens, and it's basically just the number of openings per linear inch. You know, that was one way we'd characterize it. But the thing with mesh sizing is, if you want to also release these documents as international standards or ISO documents, those people require this silly thing we call the metric system. Mm. Oh, those silly people. And with that amount of ridiculousness, they had to come up with something a little bit different to classify these things. So that's why they kind of moved away from mesh and instead went to these API screen designations. Now, even the measurements techniques have changed. And this has been around for about 10 years, right? I mean, it was, I remember when they made the change and everybody got all upset. 
But the original way to measure a screen size, you'd basically take the screen and shine light and you could use a computer and look at the void spaces mm. and it'd give you a distribution. Like the D, some people probably remember looking for the D84, which 84 microns retained. So D50, 50% pass and 50% are retained. So you have a D16, D50, D84 using a distribution curve based off of that. But it got complicated because I don't know how often you take a close glance at a shaker screen, but it turns out they went from just having those single layers to layers on top of each other. And that would help limit screen blinding and that sort of thing because it kind of be offset. And so now you don't really have this precise distribution. And I think we all know it sort of complicated in as much as you're just using a visual and saying a particle should be able to fit through that or shouldn't. So they decided to kind of scrap that and go with a new test method where they would actually apply particles to the screen and see what was retained and what wasn't. And that's where they kind of came up with the new test method. Well, um, tell us about the new test method. Let's move right on into it. You know, so if you're going to do a test method, you need a standard size material to test, right? So what they're using is aluminum grit. So like a synthetic material with a certain distribution that you sort of pre-screen out. And then you put all that, you have your screen sample of your test candidate, let's say, and you put it between some stack sieves and you vibrate it for 10 minutes and you take the weight. So you see what's retained and what isn't across that screen. And effectively what you're doing is you say, okay, this is the amount that was retained. And that gives you a D100 or 100% of these particles are always going to be retained or are likely to be retained by the screen. So the nice thing about that was we got a definitive D100 number to say, okay, this is in a standard lab setting, a consistent cut point for this screen. You can find these tables, they're all over the place, but it's in API recommended practice 13C where it will give you a D100 separation in microns. And it's going to be a little bit of a range and then it'll have an API screen number next to it. So, you know, like API 230 the D100 is somewhere between 58 and 69 microns. So it'll give you a little bit of a range just because of the inherent error and using aluminum grit or whatever. But they're tight enough that you could kind of say, okay, this is a decent starting point for my separation theory, right? And so the irony to me, though, is if you read, API goes way out of their way in the literature to say, and I quote, API recommended practice 13C does not predict rig site performance given the myriad combinations of screen shakers, fluids, flow rates, solid loadings, etc. Performance will depend on various factors, including the properties of the fluid, the operational parameters of the shaker, and the particle size distribution of the drilled solids presented to the screens. So we're already like walking back like, hey, don't make your plans around this. And I would say I get what they're saying, right? Like it's more complicated and the solids control people would be the first to tell you, hey, don't like plan your whole life around this and get really mad if the D100 isn't what you think it is exactly. But my question back is, what did you think people would do with this information given that it's a definitive D100? And not only that, but I mean, it's probably a good starting point, right? Yeah. No, so it is. We have these conversations a lot of times where it's like, yes, I get it's more complicated than that, especially think of a drilling fluid mixture. You may have particles stick together more, have some other thing. You're going to have that kind of cake layer. 
You might be using two different size screens, you know, one near the possum belly and one further down. So, of course, it's not going to cover everything, but it's a start. Mm -hmm. You mentioned and you referenced sort of the graph. And I would encourage if anyone is a mud engineer out there, it is to pull that up and you can Google it. I think I've found it on Google several times, but it's a graph. And one thing that it's helped me is a lot of times when you're pumping LCM, it's like, well, what's going to stay in the system and what's not? It's good to understand what your, say your D50 is on some LCM to know whether or not you're going to shake a lot of your LCM out or not. And so oftentimes if you're losing a bunch, you may be able to sort of select your screen size and be a bit more accurate on your selection of your screens to make sure you're not passing through too much, say, cuttings, but you're big enough to where you can get some of that LCM to stay in the system. So you can kind of use it as a way to, I guess, just optimize your, well, depending on what you're using, you can optimize your screens, so on and so forth. So something that I like to reference back, and again, it's not perfect, but at least there's some justification as to, hey, we're going to you know get a little coarser, and I think some of this LCM should stay in the system. And then it's like, oh, okay, like, well, that makes sense. And so that's helped. And then, you know, beyond that, it's just, you know, the finer, the better to get rid of your, as much of the solids as you can go. But the API 13C, I think now probably most people are familiar with designation. I don't know too many hands that, you know, probably still reference back the mesh size, unless you've been around for 15 years or plus, uh, which there's folks out there that are, but I don't think there's probably many Derek hands at this point. I remember that. So like, it was a bit of an adjustment to me. And like, I'm not confident. I always have to go back and look it up to make sure that I'm saying the right API number. Sure. Yeah. But the other part of it, let's be honest with ourselves. This table, what is the total numbers? There's probably 20 in this table. And honestly, I mean, how many are, what are you working with? Five? Yeah. Like, yes, it's interesting to know what an API screen is, an API 20 or an API 635, kind of the extremes. But the odds of you using those, pretty small. So you can get comfortable with five or six of them pretty quickly and say, okay, this is normally the range I work in, right? So I think there's that. And yes, it's nice to know the other sizes are available because there are extreme cases. You're using, for example, like Fine Grind Bayright, where you go super aggressive on screens. There's scenarios, certainly, where you could do things a little differently. And so it's good to be aware that they could be available. But you know, your bread and butter is, you know, the 140 to 325-ish ranges, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think, too, is like, again, if someone's very interested in screen or sort of the, the shaker stuff, there's a bunch of good information out there. I mean, we had Derek Corporation on, you know, several podcasts ago. And I think if you go on their website, they've got a lot of good information. But any sort of screen rep or screen company has some good information. But at the end of the day, it's optimizing your screen selection for the given operation and in understanding the whys and maybe some of the limitations that come with that as well. Matt, let's talk a little bit about screen life. Again, we're talking operations and just optimizing fluid performance. Screen life is often one of those things that we depend on. And if people aren't putting forth the effort to improve screen life or to make sure that when screens aren't, when they're starting to wear that we replace them, it can have some detrimental effects on not only the fluid performance, but the economics as well. So it's an interesting thing, right? One of the deals is you get a finer screen, you probably have a finer wire, right? Which means it's more likely to wear out quickly, something to keep in mind. But one of the things is, I've seen this, you know, one is, oh, well, I want the screens that last the absolute longest, or we're going through too many screens. I understand they're expensive. Like I understand there's other factors involved, but Sometimes maybe it's a good thing that you're going through a lot of screens because you're keeping a lot of abrasive coarse materials out. Like the reason they're getting beat up is because whatever you're drilling through is pretty nasty, right? Or they've raised the shaker beds. That can happen too. (laughs) Yes. 
assuming um, they're not doing that. Right. Well, and that kind of goes back to what is the big picture if you're dissatisfied with screen life? I mean, you can get long screen life by bypassing the shaker, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Just um, don't use <laughs> yeah. Like, believe it or not, it's a very expensive thing to do <laughs> unless you're only focused on your screen budget. Yeah. And so I think in the challenge, circling back, I sort of joked about it, but okay, some of these rigs, you can actually divert and physically inspect one while you're circulating. Many of them, the shakers are pretty much while you're circulating. Every single one of them is going to be covered. And the only time to inspect them is during connections. And normally the responsibility is with the Derek hand, who is in the Derek during connections, <laughs> right? And so trying to find part of that process, like, hey, let's check out the screens. Let's make sure they're not worn out because a lot of these shakers, you got to physically take them out. There's only a few of those kind of open bed ones where when circulation stops, you can walk up, shine a flashlight and say, these things are toast. So figuring out the right way to do that, to work with your Derek hand, to find the time when you're not circulating across the screens, or you can at least prioritize and divert and take a look at regular intervals so that you don't go 12 hours with worn out screens that are dumping a bunch of solids back into your mud system. Yeah, that's huge. And again, I joked about raising the bed heights. It's a lot of times when rig hands get busy. And again, I've been there. A lot of times they do things without understanding the consequence or what could happen ultimately if you're, like I say, at the bed height. So shake your hands busy and he doesn't want to make sure that, or she doesn't want to make sure that the mud's going to overflow at the end of the shaker. So you may raise it up a little bit, but then understanding, you know, if you're a mud engineer, perhaps educating them and saying, Hey, well, if you do that, then there's a good chance that you're going to end up having to do more work because you're going to have to replace some screens. And so really as mud engineers, it's good to communicate with folks, especially right now with how many new folks that are coming onto rigs and you know, perhaps they're so busy that they're thinking they're taking, they're working smarter, not harder, but ultimately there's some things that could lead to actually working harder and not that smarter. But anyway, it's one of those things. Screens are, again, the sort of the number one, you know, defense mechanism for us to keep solids out. And hopefully the technology gets better and better to where you don't have to change screens, but that's going to be a while, I think. Yeah, it's clearly an important thing. It's a often overlooked thing. I mean, shoot, you know, we know the mud engineer has to play an active role in helping make sure we stay on schedule and keep an eye on those things. You know, and it's sort of the joke, like we don't put the solids in there, yeah. you know, but we certainly hear about it when they show up. And so that's almost like more of an art than a science. And then you take, we're not going to unpack it in this episode, but I think we've talked about it in the past, just shaker performance in general, making sure that the screens are actually sealed up against good gaskets and all that kind of thing. So you know, when in doubt about a shaker's performance, you can catch samples, you know, catch the underflow and see what's happening. You should see some size classification. Might not be as consistent as the API test method that's done in a lab, but it should show you something. And if it doesn't, you probably have holes. But kind of being able to work your way backwards, ask good questions, but more than anything, I think it's just collaborating. Like, we don't have these conversations on the rigs that are doing pretty well and the mud engineers are able to build a relationship with Derek and, and everybody's keeping a schedule. Yeah. We have a lot more of these conversations where the rig is a circus, everybody's new, and there's just simply not enough resources to go around with how inexperienced everybody is. Right. That's when we have to have the conversation like, look, we really need help from the rig crew. But 
Did you ever have a standard schedule when you were out there as far as when you would inspect screens? I mean, it was hopefully every connection, which I mean, that's in an ideal situation. But for the most part, it was every time I was out there trying to, I mean, I would make a conscious effort to be at the screens at least, you know, once every two to three hours at the very least. There wasn't really a schedule, it was depending on what you were doing at the time. But it's one of those things, and this is a term that I not coined, but or told me a long time ago is trust but verify. Mm. And so it's like you could tell the Derek hand, hey, you make sure you're checking the screen. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're good, boss. We're good. And then next thing you know, there's 18 holes. And it's like, if you were checking them, like, did you not see this coming? Like, this one looks like it's been torn for at least 12 hours. So again, you kind of have to take some accountability, which is challenging, right? Because everyone's super busy. But again, kind of going back to treating the rig hands in the best way possible is if you can kind of get them on your side, then, then, then there's some things that they'll kind of go above and beyond a lot of times. And, you know, if they're, whether it's you're getting them food or you're doing this, doing that, whatever, but show them with some respect and treat them as best you can. Cause then they may go check the screens a little more often than just whenever. And so, but again, to say like during this time or during that time, but the ideal is like every connection, like, you know, if you've got your pressure washer there, pressure wash them off. It doesn't always have to be the dare hand. If you've got a rig hand or a, or a floor hand or a rough neck or a lease hand that, you know, you've gotten to build a relationship with, just tell, hey, during connection, if you don't see anyone up there, do you mind ripping up there and cleaning the screens? And then, you know, if especially if it's someone that just got on a rig that doesn't have much experience and, you know, they may be kind of flattered that you ask them to do something that maybe goes above what they're typically asked to do, right. like scrub the substructure. Well, hey, why don't you go on those shakers and check them out for me? Do a little analysis, would you? They're not experienced enough to tell you to <laughs> shove off yet, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, sir. And next thing you know, you get them inspired to learn about mud. So if you can just have someone at least ring you and say, hey, I sprayed off these screen things and it looks like there might be a hole in one of them. Boom. Okay, let's go change them. Or can you change them? So it doesn't have to be the Derrigan. It could be anyone. Anyone yeah. above the dare can probably will tell you to something, but below the dare can, they might take it as an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. Well, and kind of, you know, back to your point, I was just thinking about like trying to do it every connection and it's like, okay, where are you drilling to, right? <laughs> like if you're drilling 500 feet an hour, it may be something you've got to be way more intentional about because sure, sure. you're drilling really fast, lots of cuttings coming at once. Mm -hmm. Think of all of the knock-on implications along with the part where it's going to be harder to get people if you're making connections all the time and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Kind of depending on the operation and too, like what you're drilling and the ROP, because you know, the volume of cuttings coming over per hour is going to change depending on ROP. So, but then again, if you're slow drilling, it may be grinding up a bunch of fines that can oftentimes also increase the wear and tear on cutting. So it's just being familiar with the screens and what you're doing and the more you're up there and the more you can be engaged with what's going on at the shakers, is it makes everyone's lives easier. And yeah, win your rig hands over to make sure that they're helping you out too, because that's a big one. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, the one thing that I think is killing everybody is now they're recycling all the frames. Did you ever, like, I know a number of guys who would take all the old shaker screens, yeah, cut off the cloth and like they did get enough aluminum to get some decent money. Okay. And now I've seen a few of these guys that, no, no, save the frame. We can recycle it. You know, it's green energy initiative. And I'm like, you've just cut out an income stream from, <laughs> from a shaker sales hand or something. So yeah. I'm not sure how many actually make it back, but. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what folks did is I know we'd create a, like in Canada, the leases were always so muddy. Like they were so nasty. And so we would make walkways with old screens because yeah. like, you know, because then we don't have to wash our boots every 38 seconds and. 
yeah. everything else. But yeah, I didn't think about the sales part of it. Take them and scrap goods and create a little bit of income on that. But yeah, you know, again, screens are one of many things that we have to pay attention to. You know, if anyone out there has any good stories or thoughts or Maybe someone in the screen world wants to reach out and add a little color to what we've talked about today. We'd be happy to. And Matt, any closing last words or thoughts before we close out? No, I just wanted to run through that table. We've had that conversation come up a few times. Yeah. And so I thought it might be helpful. Is there a certain name to the table or did you, in case people are like, oh, what's it called? Or I mean, if you just Google like API screen size, it'll come up with the tables. It's in the recommended practice 13C. Perfect. Yeah, it so. should be fairly easy to Google there and yeah, check it out. And it's something good. You know, for me, I even have it, you know, funny enough, I don't have a tally book. I have them, but I don't use them as much, but I have a notebook and I actually have that graph along with our LCMs and our particle size distributions on there. Cause a lot of times like the question comes up if you're in a meeting, well, what size screens will let XYZ LCM through? So it's something it's small enough where you can put it in your tally book in case you yeah. want anything extra in your tally book. It's probably loaded to the gills, but it's something you can put in there too. So with that being said, everyone, appreciate you listening today. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas, please hit us up on LinkedIn, or you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. Go Astros. And hopefully when we're listening to this, we'll be celebrating the win. Matt, what do you think? Go Stros. Go Stros. Take care, everyone. Thanks Later. again. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.